0: and welcome to Patmos. Thank you for listening and or watching. Today we're going to be talking about uh, a little bit of old news. Uh, It was about a month ago, but uh, Archbishop Gomez of LA, his address um, that he made. He's the president of the Conference of Catholic Bishops in America, and uh, we're going to be talking about that, the uh, kind of the recognition of the Church of Woke Um, and a little bit of its history, at least as far as I see its evolution going. But first, a little housekeeping. If you could please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, If you're watching, please like the video. Uh, Please subscribe and share. Hit the notification bell, uh, which lets you know whenever a new video comes up. Um, I also run a little bit of a community on Locals. Uh, I appreciate it if you join, even if you're not planning on doing anything. If you do want to join, it's absolutely free. If you want to post or comment, um, I can't set it any lower, lower locals minimum uh, is $2 uh, to do those sorts of things. And that is what helps pay for their uh, servers and uh, their employees, I guess. Uh, I'll also be using that as kind of a bit of a rallying point if uh, there's ever a point in the future where things start to get a little bit more sketchy online as far as for using any of the other major platforms. So uh, I just encourage you there. Just go sign up and then um, you will uh, be able to come and um, see wherever we end up at. Um, Also, yeah, if you want to donate via cryptocurrency, that would be very uh, appreciated. And the addresses are there at the local site. It is Ozymandias.locals.com. O Z Y M A N D I A S.locals.com. So today, and I apologize, I'm about to be flipping back and forth um, to my phone here because our internet is out. We had a heck of a windstorm and it's uh, knocked a bunch of stuff out. Thankfully, the power's still on. Um, but this is the uh, Archbishop Gomez's uh, address to the Congress of Catholics and Pro Life, uh, Congress of Catholics and Public Life uh, in Spain. And uh, he had to do it uh, via telecon, for one reason or the other. But Archbishop Gomez is the Archbishop of Los Angeles. Uh, he's also the president of the uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is, if, uh, if you're Orthodox listening out there, it's basically almost kind of like the regional synod of Catholic bishops. And they meet usually annually uh, to discuss topics, figure out things that aren't working well, that kind of stuff. Um, in his address. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll I'll, um, um, be reading a chunk of it. And in his letter, he starts with uh, the first section called Secularization and Dechristianization. And this is the Archbishop. I think we all know that while there are unique conditions in the United States, similar broad patterns of aggressive secularization have been long at work in Spain and elsewhere in Europe. An elite leadership class has risen in our countries that has little interest in religion and no real attachments to nations they live in or to local traditions or cultures. This group, which is in charge of corporations, governments, universities, the media, and in the cultural and professional establishments, want to establish what we might call a global civilization built on consumer economy and guided by science, technology, humanitarian values, and technocratic ideas about organizing society. In this elite worldview, there's no need for old-fashioned belief systems and religions. In fact, as they see it, religion, especially Christianity, only gets in the way of the society they hope to build. That is important to remember. In practice, as our popes have pointed out, secularization means de-Christianization. For years now, there's been a deliberate effort in Europe and America to erase the Christian roots of society and to suppress any remaining Christian influences. In your program for this Congress, you allude to cancel culture and political correctness. And we recognize that often what is being called cancel and corrected are perspectives rooted in Christian beliefs about human life and the human person, about marriage, the family, and more. In your society and mine, the space that the church and believing Christians are permitted to occupy is shrinking. Church institutions and Christian-owned businesses are increasingly challenged and harassed. The same is true for Christians working in education, healthcare, government, and other sectors. Holding certain Christian beliefs is said to be a threat to the freedoms, and even to the safety of other groups in our societies. One more point of context, we all noticed the dramatic social changes in our society with the coming of coronavirus and the way our government authorities responded to the pandemic. I think history will look back and see that this pandemic did not change our societies as much as it accelerated trends and directions that were already at work. Social changes that might have taken decades to play out are now moving more rapidly in the wake of disease and in our society's response. That is certainly true in the United States. The new social movements and ideologies that we are talking about were being seeded and prepared for many years in our universities and cultural institutions, but with the tension and fear caused by the pandemic and social isolation and the killing of an unarmed black man by a white policeman and the protests that followed in our cities, these movements were fully unleashed in our society. This context is important in understanding our situation in the United States The name George Floyd is now known worldwide, and that is because for many people in my country, myself included, his tragedy became a stark reminder that racial and economic equality are still deeply embedded in our society. We need to keep this reality of inequality in mind because these movements that we are talking about are part of a wider discussion, a discussion that is absolutely essential, about how to build an American society that expands opportunities for everyone, no matter what color their skin is, or where they come from, or their economic status. With that, let's turn to my next point. And this is me talking now. This is the the meat of what I wanted to talk about here, because I think this is very uh, important. But I'll I'll save the rest of my my commentary here after I'm after I'm done. Back to the words of the Archbishop. Here is my thesis. I believe the best way for the church to understand the new social justice movements is to understand them as pseudo-religions and even replacements and rivals to tra- traditional Christian beliefs. With the breakdown of the Judeo-Christian worldview and the rise of secularism, political belief systems based on social justice or per- excuse me, personal identity have come to fill the space that Christian belief and practice once occupied. Whatever, whatever we call these movements, social justice, wokeness, identity politics, intersectionality, successor ideology, they claim, to what, uh, they claim to offer what religion provides. They provide people with an explanation for events and conditions in the world. They offer a sense of meaning, a purpose for living, and the feeling of belonging to a community. Even more than that, like Christianity, these new movements tell their own story of salvation. To explain what I mean, let me try to briefly compare the Christian story with what we might call the woke story or the social justice story. The Christian story, in its simplest form, goes something like this. We are created in the image of God and called to a blessed life and union with him and with our neighbors. Human life has a God-given telos, an intention, a direction. Through our sin, we are alienated from God and from one another, and we live in the shadow of our own death. By the mercy of God and his love for each of us, we are saved through the dying and rising of Jesus Christ. Jesus reconciles us to God and our neighbors, gives us the grace to be transformed in his image and calls us to follow him in faith, loving God and our neighbor, working to build his kingdom on earth, all in confident hope that we will have eternal life with him in the world to come. That's the Christian story. And now more than ever, the church and every Catholic needs to know this story and proclaim it in all its beauty and truth. We need to do that because there is another story out there today, a rival salvation narrative and we hear being, that we hear being told in the media and in our institutions by the new social justice movements. What we might call the woke story goes something like this. We cannot know where we are from. But we are aware that we have interests in common with those who share our skin color or our position in society. We are also painfully aware that our group is suffering and alienated through no fault of our own. The cause of our unhappiness is that we are victims of oppression by other groups in society. We are liberated and find redemption through our constant struggle against our oppressors by waging a battle for political and cultural power in the name of creating a society of equality of equity. Clearly, this is a powerful and attractive narrative for millions of people in American society and in societies across the West. In fact, many of America's leading corporations, universities, even public schools are actively promoting and teaching this vision. This story draws its strength from the simplicity of its explanation. The world is divided into uh, innocents and victims, allies, and adversaries. But this narrative is also attractive because, as I said earlier, It responds to real human needs and suffering. People are hurting. They do feel discriminated against and excluded from opportunities in society. And we should not forget this. Many of those who subscribe to these new movements and belief systems are motivated by noble intentions. They want to change conditions in society society that deny men and women their rights and opportunities for a good life. This, uh, or of course, we all want to build a society that provides equality, freedom, and dignity for every person, but we can only build a just society on the foundation of the truth about God and his human nature. This has been the constant teaching of our church and our popes for nearly two centuries now. So he he goes on to say, um, talk about how these critical race theories, ideologies are profoundly atheistic. This is where I kind of diverge and I, I disagree with him because he's not... The thing is, he's like, he's almost there because he, he says that they're atheistic and they deny the soul, the spiritual, the transcendent dimension of human nature. Um, I don't think that they do um, at all. The Church of Woke is profoundly spiritual. Humanity is profoundly spiritual. And I've, I've talked about this Oh, maybe I haven't on on this podcast. Maybe I'm thinking back. Excuse me to my Bitcoin podcast where we kind of discussed. Um, yeah, I think that was because we were talking about Bitcoin as a religion for for people. Um, but people are profoundly spiritual and religious when they when people say that they aren't. You know, I'm I'm not spiritual. I don't believe in that stuff. What they mean is, I am not, I do not practice or, I do not practice. I also do not recognize um, myself in any of the spiritual practices or descriptions of spiritual experience that, for the most part, I'm speaking from a Western perspective, as far as for like kind of in the, the European West, I don't identify with with you know christian faith or religious experience or mysticism or those types of things but people are always profoundly even i mean like the most atheist like uh, richard dawkins profoundly spiritual person he's profoundly spiritual for scientism that his life is it's not a matter of um just this is this is something I you know I like being a scientist and I you know I enjoy my job and all that it's like he is the evangelist for his, for um a Christian denying scientism I guess you could say where they're denying the Christian concept of the world uh he's profoundly spiritual in that this is his life's mission one does not dedicate I'm sure he's making money from it but These types of uh, circuits of 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 talking uh, or of of speaking engagements and and talking at universities and writing books and going and promoting the book and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is is grueling. Everyone that I've ever talked to that's ever uh, or just heard people talk about um, their experiences with kind of doing these sorts of thing of being a public persona is it's very grueling it's very, very, very difficult. And, uh, it's not something that you, I mean, like Dawkins could have retired comfortably years and, you know, years and years and years before. Um, but he didn't because he's profoundly spiritual. He's profoundly religious people are. And with the breakdown of, um, well, I guess we should maybe go back a little bit. So, To to see the root of of this, I mean, it really goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the the adversary, um, Satan, the devil, does not care. I'm sure he finds profound enjoyment to have people who are uh, not cosplaying atheists, uh, atheist trolls saying that they are of the Church of Satan but like actual people that do believe what they're doing and do do those sorts of sacrifices and stuff um, but he doesn't care if you like he's not trying to convert seven billion people to offer a satanic sacrifice in an overt fashion right he only wants you to worship something as long as it's not God that's it he does not care. He does not care if you're Hindu. He does not care if you're Satanist. He does not care if you're really into CrossFit, as long as whatever it is that you are worshiping is not God. And I guess we could define worship differently too, because the very topical concept of worship is, okay, well, I I go to church, you know, I go to church on Sunday and, and I participate and I believe in God and I sing the hymns and you know, I kneel down when I'm supposed to kneel down and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, yes, I mean, that—that that is worship of God. But when we say, what do you worship? That is, if you were going to, if everything in the world became illegal, from playing video games to um, eating food, to worshiping God, to riding a bike, to hiking mountains, if a prosecutor had to come and say, okay, what is the easiest thing for us to convict this person of? What would that be in your life? Do people know you as a man or a woman? When they go like, oh, oh so who, you know, if they were describing you, would they first say, oh, he's, you know, he's very Catholic, he's very orthodox, he's very fill-in-the-blank. Or would they say, oh, he's an avid mountaineer. Oh, he's an avid this or whatever. Um, and it doesn't mean you can't have hobbies and passions. Because one, you could rightly say, like, this is just a misperception of people, but this, I'm just more of doing this as a thought experiment but what you worship is identified by how you act in society are you oriented towards where god and the worship of him is the number 1 thing in your life no matter what or is it you're practicing fill in the blank but your but like what your but your biggest passion and what you think about and obsess about and do all that kind of is that God, or is that something else? And this is where the parables of the rich men always come into play. It's not that you having the skills, whether you are very good at coding and you make a lot of money doing that, it's not And, and that being rich is bad. It's not that if you are a very good financial advisor, let's say, or um, somebody who consults with, you know, uh, very well-off people and helps to protect their money and and invest wisely. um, And you make a lot of money for that trouble. Does that mean that you won't get to heaven? No. The, The lesson in the parable of the rich men is that what we are greedy about, whether it's money or anything else, is what is going to sink our soul. So if you're obsessed with money and status and having the nice, ni- newest, nicest car and the nicest new watch or clothes or whatever, and you're constantly working and sacrificing everything in your else, else in your life to be able to do that, that is where you are missing the mark. It is not in the fact that a bunch of money appears in your bank account. It's in how you approach it. Some of us are given gifts of... Uh, I'm sure you've met these people that are extremely good with children. Extremely good. And like those kinds of people are going to be great. Like wonderful parents or teachers working with small children, different things like they have an immense amount of patience and understanding and just have a way of talking to children that a lot of people do not. That is your gift. And that's what you should use to serve God in that manner. Some people are blessed with just musical talent. It doesn't mean that being very good at music and practicing a lot is a bad thing. But what are you orientating yourself towards? Is it just music? In the same way that if God blesses you with the ability and the circumstances where you can make a lot of money, that's there's nothing wrong with that. It's not that you should turn that down. You should not sacrifice your family, your faith, and all those sorts of things for just making money. But God is calling you to then take that wealth that you have gotten and use it to build his kingdom on earth. Whether that's donating to a church, to charities, supporting priests, supporting religious, um, supporting um, uh, Catholic education programs, things like that. The parable is really about what are you orientated to? And Christ was speaking to poor, mostly uh, very poor what we would call working class, but working class today would be kings and would be, would, be, uh, would be Herod's compared to these people. And he was not saying having money. He was saying that having money and using it selfishly is the problem, obsessing about it. Um, Joseph of Arimathea uh, donated his, his burial chamber so that Christ could be buried there and had him wrapped in a fine shroud and, and perfumes and all the burial, uh, Jewish burial practices were, were, uh, conducted. And if we go back, I I digress there a little bit, but if we go back, um, to the enlightenment, that's kind of the start of all this. You saw, um, this rediscovery of kind of a, of the pagan history of, of Europe and this idea, well, they were so far ahead, they had these ideas. It was the rediscovery of knowledge and the, associ- the association that with pre-Christian times led to a overt or inferred blame of Christendom and the Christian faith for the backwardsness of it and that because while we look in the Romans they were so advanced so should we not just emulate them in every way they were free with their sexuality they were free with their morals I mean there was a moral code but they didn't have these same hang-ups should we not emulate them and this was the beginning of the idea of the social gospel The Church of Woke. This idea of human progress on earth in material terms as being the true goal that we should align ourselves to. It was the sin of Adam, the focusing on self. I want to be God. As the Archbishop says in the letter, we are called to build God's kingdom on earth. We are not called... I mean, some are called to to seek out God alone in a cave. Most of us are called to raise families, to live in a society, live in a culture. And we have to not only align our lives, but to align that society and the groups and the cultures that we live in towards Christ. Not with guns, but with our examples. And this alignment that began in in the Enlightenment that slowly turned our eyes away from heaven and back down to ourselves, onto humanity. And this idea, it's rooted in the sin of Adam, of us wanting to be like God. And men started to believe that, in fact, that they were God. And they felt as though like God... will punish vices and bring chastisements to bring his people back to him and back towards the goal, so should they be able to use whatever means necessary to align their countries, their people, back towards their goal of a utopia on earth. And if you fast forward quite a bit, all the way to the end of the 19th century, really the beginning of the 20th century, you start to see within Protestant American circles, this idea of the social gospel. I guess we could go back just a little bit uh, post-Civil War as the West is being won. There were groups of Christians that were seeking uh, to create these, they had these ideas of forming utopia on earth, right? and uh, Protestantism especially is about, or I shouldn't say, uh, broad brush. The, there was a, there was an idea of let's get back to the original church, right? Let's copy what the original Christians did, because they looked at, um, and they had right criticisms about the corruption within the church, the selling of indulgences, uh, the corruption of, of men who were not committed to celibacy or chastity or serving God in any way, but were Um, using ties and money and bribes to get themselves promoted to becoming bishops and cardinals so that they could enjoy those trappings and titles. Um, They were right to have criticisms of of those things, but they then said, well, let's, let's go what they thought was opposite. Let's go back to the original Christians. They were poor people living in big cities all across the known world, and they met in tiny little houses, and they didn't have these gilded crosses and massive miters and all that. I mean, the problem being is that there were bishops um, in early Christian periods. There was broad consensus on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and and the sacraments, but um, not to make this into a Protestant bashing idea, but it uh, they wanted to get back to this original concept so they started to uh individuals would form these communities and they would build them out in the middle of nowhere in the west and they basically look like a little fortified town with walls and the idea was like the one um i can't remember the the exact um was acts where they talked about how the christians uh they would share basically the it was what people would say is you know the, the roots of communism and christianity where they would share amongst themselves we don't know the extent of what that meant um if i had to guess i would say is that um it, it was it was it was basically like a, a sharing community where they would share. if Somebody needed help with this, people would pitch in. If somebody needed food, they would go get you know uh, food from a common area, and there wasn't necessarily this idea of well, this is my food in my pantry. It was probably a communal type of thing, which may or may not have just been absolutely necessary because they had to live um, by themselves, uh, separate uh, on the fringes of society at the time. But regardless, they decided to do that. Everything was in common. There was no private property. Um, Everyone had to basically live according to the Judeo-Christian values, morals, and requirements. Um, And some of these societies uh, ended up, I mean, it's kind of the roots of like the Amish and the Mennonites, this idea of a communal living of just us in here. We're not going to live amongst the outside world like the Amish call all of us out here. You know, they just call them the English, the world of the English. Um, most of these failed. Um, I can't pull it up right now, but I had an article written um in relation to this concept of uh utopianism within Bitcoin, the the concept of the citadel. And um Hatterite, was it Hutterites? Anyways, um, most of these communities failed pretty quickly. Uh, people would show up, think it was a good idea. a lot of times it was it was poor people uh, who lived in these cities and they said, "Okay, well, at least I'll have my basic needs uh, taken care of." And it just never ended up being uh, what they wanted. There would be arguments, um, all you know, people would be hiding things, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the important thing is not that they failed or that this one worked or whatever is that that was kind of this seed of this idea of, because the heart of the idea of what they were trying to do to those communities was to have the kingdom of God on earth. And this is a faulty understanding of the kingdom of God and that earth, everything, all of creation is within the kingdom of God. What we are supposed to be doing is elevating the fallen just like we elevate ourselves. And instead, they're trying to build what is up in the down. And so this planted this utopian idea, and then at the end of the 19th century into the early 1900s, you started to have the, the birth of the social gospel movement. And this was at the same time that you saw an explosion of radical liberalism. know unionization um communism socialism communist revolutions and this was kind of a more american christian version of 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 the uh, the impulse of communism in terms of let's build god's kingdom here let's build a utopia here eyes not to heaven our eyes will be down on the ground and it was all what we would call if we were, they were around nowadays, we'd say ultra progressive preachers, ultra progressive pastors. And there, there was good fruit from it. Um, you know, food pantries, child education, um, assistance for workers who become injured, all these sorts of things that are all good. And they're all things. Um, the problem is you have these good impulses. And that's where we see with the church Awoke. we'll get into it in a little bit. It's like, a lot of these divine impulses that are we are called to as Christians, but then they are inverted, not to worship God, but to point back down at ourselves. And over time, the social gospel movement, it was a very big, and then there were non-Christian, I should say, really people that maybe uh, to an extent um, nominally identified as Christians christian just in public for for keeping up but they probably weren't really that practicing or didn't really care started to get in and but offer a more secularized version of it and this is kind of the birth of the progressive movement its heart is in the social gospel movement and over a pretty short period of time you started to see the social gospel with its roots in christianity slowly separating and dying as the tree of progressivism kind of grew bigger and bigger. And slowly over time, Christ was removed from it. But the kind of goals and ends of the social gospel movement survived in a secularized fashion. And as the Archbishop rightfully pointed out, secularization is just code for getting Christ and getting the church out of public life. Um, and that's also where the concept of, the, like when they say separation, uh, it's just, I do find it strange the this hallowed idea of the separation of church and state in the United States was never anything written in the constitution or the bill of rights declaration of independence, anything. It was a, it was a letter that Jefferson sent, I believe to a church, obviously he was writing about it, um, because it was a sentiment at the time. It was an idea among the founding fathers, many of whom were not they would nominally call themselves Christian, but they weren't really Christian. They were more deist. They believe in a rough conception of the Judeo Christian God, but not in any of the religious practices um from the first seventeen hundred years really, uh, at the point when they were living. Um But when they say separation of church and state, when they say we want to separate church and state, they're not saying, oh, we want to make sure we don't end up having a caliphate here. Or, oh, we want to make sure we don't ever end up having like a a Hindu uh, United States. What they really meant is we want to get Christ out of the government. We want to get Christ out of America. Right. And that's what it is, because you can't have a vacuum, this idea that, uh, modernists materialists have that you can remove religion. What they really mean is remove Christianity out of public life. And that somehow that vacuum that is there will not be filled with something is, is patently ridiculous. It's in the same way of like trying to say, Oh, well we want to get politics out of government. So we're just going to eliminate, um, parties and what they really would mean is we want to eliminate uh you know conservatives or something along those lines and to have their people in it but just under a different name or just under the you know we're the non-political party right something like that there's always going to be something that fills that void and the adversary is there he doesn't care what fills that void he doesn't care what fills the void of religion in america as long as it's not christ that's all he cares about and so things did fill it. Um, as we've seen, the, the the de-Christianization of the West, you saw, um, it's not that sports and entertainment was never popular prior to this, but you go around to parts of the country and the local sports team is a religion. People who, to the point where they're not wearing a crucifix to a sports event you know whether they're going to see a football game or a baseball game or they're watching it at home on the tv they won't wear a crucifix then but they will wear that sports team to church when i talked about where who you orientating yourself who could you be what would be the easiest conviction in this theoretical scenario for those people it would not be a follower of christ it would be a steelers fan seahawks fan this is a perversion of a right it, it you it is not a perversion to find pride and enjoyment in your local culture in your the achievements of your local whatever it is your local sports team or how beautiful the buildings are in your city the perversion is is when that becomes pride And takes your eyes off of God. This is where the disordered perversion of these rightfully ordered feelings and and actions that we have or um, impulses that we have come from. And, you know, CrossFit is a religion, veganism is a religion, Um, mega is a religion. all these things are perversions of Christ. And everybody, and if you are a Christian and fall into any of those things, you're probably thinking to yourself, no, 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 no. I love God and I pray every day and all that. It's like, yeah, but what do you talk about all the time? Are the things printed on your shirts? Are they associated with CrossFit or are they vegan or are they dog mom or whatever it is? What do people identify you as? If they don't identify you as a Christian, they don't have identify you as a follower of Christ, first and foremost, what does that say about how you're approaching? It doesn't mean... I don't want to get in the nuance of like, you know, you don't want to talk about it all the time. You, you don't want to be too pushy where you push people off of it and all that. I get that kind of stuff. But I'm saying just in your silent example. And so the church of woke is not necessarily, you know, somehow the final form of this alternative religion that the archbishop speaks of. And it's not a pseudo religion, it's a religion. It's a rival religion, as much as Hinduism or paganism is a rival religion to Christianity. It's a rival faith. It's a rival faith Uh, of the adversary to pull us away from God, to confuse us. And I, I don't necessarily think this is the final form of it, that wokeness is. It's an evolution of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist, it's not a matter of when the, you know, like everything the Antichrist does and was prophesied to do only starts and happens the second that he comes into the world and lets himself be known. All these things are preceded in history. Christ was always the Redemptor. His coming was preceded. Our fall was 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 preceded. The sorts of splits in Christianity were were preceded, and they are, in a way, part of all the of a, the divine intention, the divine plan. But it's not as though everyone will be hypnotized to an extent where the Antichrist just shows up and everybody was a really good, faithful Christian. All of a sudden, just says, "Oh, never mind." These things are preceded, slowly peeling away followers of God, slowly splitting them off into different directions so that they're confused and don't know who to turn to, don't know who has authority to uh, define doctrine, or who has authority to be able to um, clarify that which is unclear. We see through a glass, but... We, uh, we see through a glass darkly, but we see, and all these things are preceding the coming of them. And, you know, I don't make any sort of predictions on this is going to be in, you know, oh in two years. I do, however, and it's, it, it could be a, a bit of hubris because every generation has felt that they were viewing, um, they were either in the end times or Uh, they were they were coming very quickly in truth the end times have uh, we've been in the end times since since christ's uh, death and resurrection but our time is not it's not a matter of well the end times are a period of three years or anything like that like these things can stretch out very very long but what we are experiencing and seeing today Is a seeding of that. Is an acceleration towards that. Most Christians would read revelations and read about the mark of the beast. And say. I would never get the mark. I would never do that but how many of those same people will go, well, I don't want to, I know I love taking our trip down to Florida every year. We always go down to Costa Rica. It's in spring now. We're retired. That's what you're supposed to do. We always visit the kids for Christmas. And, you know, I can't get on a plane if I don't have that stamp next to my name that says I got the thing you're supposed to have. If you're willing to do it for a vacation to be marked, I'm not making a direct comparison saying it is the mark, but it is a mark, of course. Everything's a mark. A driver's license is a mark. It's an identification period. Or identification uh, of yourself. But if you're willing to be marked for something s- that is so fishy on the face of it, for such a small thing, what happens when it's you can't get an income and you, as prophesied, you cannot shop, you cannot conduct business without it? Everyone thinks of, of some sort of very literal scenario of a guy standing with a crown and dictating, saying, you know, you guys can't worship Jesus anymore. And unless you get this devil symbol uh, tattooed on your forehead, you're not going to be able to do this or that as though it's going to be so overt in a way. The devil does not work very often in big over-the-top sort of things. It's always very nuanced. It's always very slow. It's a slow knife. It's very much like a con man where they prep you and work you towards that end goal of giving up that which they want to them and it's not done in your face like some sort of used car salesman or a bad used car salesman I should say prep work is done groundwork is done and then slowly you start to think that oh well you know this is just a no-brainer it's not a big deal and you convince yourself it's the small you know everyone always thinks in terms of of your life and eliminating sin from it that oh I would never do X or Y What's well, so you've never been really challenged with X or Y before, and most people that had ever done really bad things, it wasn't like someone like Himmler was 16 and then they said go kill 16 million people, and then gave him a gun and and whatever. It was slowly over time this little compromise allowed this next little compromise that allowed this next little compromise, and that's why it's important within our lives as Christians for us to reject compromise in our lives, to identify and go, okay, and this is something I struggle with, where it's like, I was working late, and I've committed myself to doing my uh, monastic hours, uh, saying my uh, twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. Sometimes I miss it. I missed prime this morning. Um, i would be doing terse or Sext. Uh, And then compliment at night and I'll come in and it's late and I've already showered and I'm just exhausted and going like, uh, you know, it's, I'll just, you know, I'll just do quick prayers as I'm going to bed. And it's those types of compromise. When I do do that, that's when I notice a change. And the next thing I know, it'll be three days and I haven't done my prayers. I haven't done any of them morning or evening. And I'll go, oh, shoot. And then it's hard to get back into it. That could just be my... and This this is a bit subjective to me. Um, like with my um, issues with, with alcohol that I've talked about before. Um, that's how it is. I was never to the point where I was... Um, we hear there are like the real horror stories from people that were drinking for like 30 years and all the... You know, insanely, but uh, terrible stuff that happened. Um, I don't have any stories like that, but just a matter of it, it is, uh, uh, dangerous for me because, um, the slippery slope is very, very prevalent in that, in that if I go, okay. And I can do that where I'll go like, will oh, I'm just gonna have, I'll just have one or two drinks. And I'll just do that in one night. But then slowly I start to go, okay. And then it's like three days later. I'm like, okay, well that worked out, you know? And so I'll do that again. And the next thing I know, it's like, three or four days after that I'll do it again and then I'll go it's only two days after and then it's like the next time it's like well it seems like I kind of got a handle on this you know I can just have one or two and then and then it's one or two every night and then well I had two a third one's not going to hurt and then next thing you know you're waking up with hangovers and not remembering when you went to bed and stuff like that and that is at least for me the small compromises really roll downhill pretty quickly into big problems. Um, so at least for my spirituality and at least in my conversations with other people, it's, it's those small compromises, um, that lead to, lead to big, massive compromises that if you had taken that big, massive compromise, you get to six months, a year later and shown it to that person before they made the little compromise and said, Hey, would you do this? It would go, oh, absolutely not. But that is how the adversary works. He knows your weaknesses and preys upon those. But I th- I think this is, to, to wrap it up, I think that this is good. The state of the Catholic Church worldwide is not great. Um, there are some very bright lights. Um, but we are in a very dark period right now. And everybody who's listening who is catholic who is um considering and and searching uh and learning about the church and considering uh, and praying on um joining it now i i i commend you because it's a very courageous and and hard thing to do it's it's definitely much different than doing it 20 years ago but these are some bright lights that we're seeing some points of light the archbishop is getting there he's not there he is not there in recognizing this for what it is or the the true scope of it or the historical context but to hear an archbishop talking about competing religions and not talking about protestantism not talking about you know islam or whatever but talking about these real religions who masquerade as uh ideal ideological movements is is very heartening to see it's very very good it's very very good but um we're at about uh, 50 minutes or so so i just want to let everybody go um i'm gonna be trying to do these more regular again i apologize for basically eight months of incognito there's a lot of stuff that was going on i got very busy building this chapel and um other stuff going on in my personal life um but i thank you for listening i thank you for watching um please again if uh you could go and join uh the locals i would very much appreciate that even if you aren't uh contributing uh monetarily um it's ozymandias.locals.com o-z-y-m-a-n-d-i-a-s.locals.com thank you again i really appreciate it Thank you.